Welcome to Sermons of Grace with Pastor David Murphy of the Grace Baptist Church in Gambles Terrace, Antigua. Last week in our study of the Book of Romans, Pastor Murphy showed us that the believer has been changed at the moment of conversion and made free from sin. Today we'll see three more truths about the believer's life and why the believer should live a life in the pursuit of righteousness. All right, turn your Bibles with me, please, to the book of Romans, chapter 6. And I want to uh, read from verse number 18, but our text is going to be found in verse number 22. But I think it's important for us to see the connection between um, those verses and verse number 22. Paul writes in verse uh, 18, he said, Being made free from sin... Ye became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the man of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, so now yield your members' servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when ye were the servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. What fruit had you then in those things whereof you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Verse 22, our text. But now being made free from sin and become servants of God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. That's the first thing that Paul points out in this passage. Number one, that we are freed from sin. Notice the second positive that Paul uses to incentivize these believers to pursue holiness. He says, you were free from sin and you became what? Servants of God. Literally, the language is, you have been enslaved to God. Again, it's passive voice. It's not something that you do. It is something that God does when you got saved. He so transformed your life that he now enslaves you to God. So what happens is this. When you got saved, you now find that your focus is now towards God. It's not focused towards the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's now focused towards God. And you ask, how did that happen? The answer is very simple. God changes your whole mindset. That your focus now becomes you want to serve God. Go back to the day you got saved. Go back in your memory now and then. And I will tell you this, I can still remember the night I got saved. It was a night where, as far as I was concerned, I was surrendering my life completely to God to live for him. And I hope that was true of you. And you go back to know how serious it was. Your whole life transformed. Your whole parents want to know why you can't do this, why you can't do that. But the answer is that you've got this transformative change in you and now you become enslaved to God so something new has happened to you and because you've been translated from this uh, kingdom of darkness into this new territory and this new domain you now have a new master and that new master is God in the Pauline jargon Paul says you became enslaved to God the idea here that God has purchased you you remember that Paul keeps using this 
analogy of slavery again throughout this chapter. And Paul said, you know, I'm just using it because of the weakness of the flesh. And everyone who read Paul's epistle and hear that we were enslaved to God now and being freed, it meant one thing. It meant that somehow God paid the price to free us from sin so that we may become his, become enslaved to him. And of course, what that is teaching is the whole biblical doctrine of atonement. That God took his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and paid the cost of his death for us, to free us. Know that he didn't free us to do as we please. He didn't free us to live as we please. He freed us from one master so that we would become slaves to another master. And that's what Paul is saying. You are free from sin so you become enslaved to God. In other words, you've been purchased. You recall when Paul was dealing with the Corinthian church that was marked by such rabid carnality. Uh, in fact, carnality that, quite frankly, had not the book of Corinthians written those kind of things. Most of us would say these people can't be saved. Imagine people at the communion table and some of them are drunk. I mean, that is unthinkable. Read chapter 11 of Corinthians. How, how is that possible? Well, if you understand what the pagan lifestyle was and what the, the festivities were in the temple, you would understand they transferred that to the church. And remember that this is just the first century church, the beginning of the inquit churches were, as it were. Then you've got a young man in the church who is living in an incestuous relationship with his stepmother. And the church refused to send a man out of the church. They're boasting how liberal and how generous and how tolerant they are. How do you combat that kind of a mindset? You know what Paul does in Corinthians chapter 6 when he's dealing with this whole problem within the church? Paul says, look, you are bought with a price and you are not your own. He tells the believers, you have a new master. You find that in Corinthians uh, chapter 6 and verse number 20. You're not your own. See? One of the things that you will uh, go through in Romans chapter 6, this is very insightful. You see these series of gradations that Paul talks about and employs in relation to the believer. And he has four steps of gradation. Let me show you what I mean. In verse 16, look what he says in verse 16. In the last part of verse 16, he said that you are now, verse 16, but know you not to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness. That's the first thing he said. You have become servants of righteousness, basically. That's the first thing he said. Look at verse 17. He says, uh, and God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine for which you were delivered. Notice that you have now become a slave to that form of doctrine. Obedience to righteousness, the slave of that form of doctrine. But notice in verse number 18, he says, Being then made free from sin, you became servants of righteousness. You see the gradation? First of all, he said that you became slave of obedience. Secondly, you became slaves of that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Thirdly, you became slaves of righteousness. But here's the pinnacle, here's the zenith, here is the what you might call the, the summit of it all. He now says you became servants of God. See? 
One, two, three, four. But that's the pinnacle. You became servants of God. That's the whole plan all the way. To see yourself as a servant of God. You became enslaved to him. Obedience, form of doctrine, righteousness, God. The very summit of what holiness is all about. And what Apostle Paul is saying to us in this passage. That God is now your master. And you ought to live to glorify him. And to live to do his will. We have no right to live as ourselves. We have no right to please ourselves. We now live habitually to please him. That's what Paul is saying in this passage. And by the way, when you begin to practice habitual sin in your life, you have become a person who has joined with the enemy and committed treason against heaven. Uh, You must understand that you have now become person who you have a new master we are meant to serve God not sin and that is why we have uh, the apostle Paul making this command to let us know that we are now become enslaved to God have you ever uh, considered Matthew chapter 22 verse 37 and 38 what I call the imperious command of Christ listen to these words Christ said the first commandment is this You should love God with your heart, with your soul, with your mind, and your spirit. Is that what he says? I'm shocked that's not what he said, you know. There's one little word that is missing in all four of those. Listen to what he says. You should love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. It's easy to say love God with your heart, your mind, your strength, etc. But when you take that little word all, and, and by four different times, he uses the word all. See? And the whole idea is to remind us that when we become believers and we put our faith and trust in Christ, we have a new master. Our purpose is not to do our own will, do our own thing, live our own way, go our own path. It's now to completely devote ourselves to him. See, See him as our master and we are now enslaved to our master and this is what Paul is trying to get across uh, to these believers and the way that you can show your enslavement to God is through one thing only and that is making your master's will your will in life look with me uh, and I quoted at the beginning to Hebrews chapter 10 verse 7 to 9 In that particular passage in verse number 7, uh, it says, Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book, it's written of me, to do thy will, O God. And then look at verse number 9. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. In, in both cases, it's a prophetic pronouncement that the Messiah is coming and the purpose of the Messiah and the purpose of his whole entire life is to do the will of God. If you look at John chapter 5, And verse 30. John chapter 5 and verse 30. Our Lord utters these words himself. He says, I can do of my own. I can do, I can of my own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge and my judgment is just. Here's the reason. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father that sent me. You notice that. The prophets had prophesied that when the Messiah come, his whole purpose would be to do God's will. 
The Messiah has come and he's saying that I can't do anything of my own self. My whole purpose in life is not to do my own will, but to do the will of him that sent me. Look also what he said in John chapter 6 and verse 20, verse 38. He says, for I came down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And that explains when he's in the garden of Gethsemane in Luke chapter 22. And you remember as he begins to pray, the Bible says great sweats of blood began to flow from him. There are those that believe that he was under so much stress that the blood poured through his pores and, and just dripped down. And the reason why he's under such tremendous stress is because here is the immaculate Holy Son of God who has never known what sin is in himself, is now about to take the sins of the entire universe upon himself. And for the first time in his life, there is going to be a disfellowship between him and the Father. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But in that moment, while he's under such tremendous stress, he finds enough strength to utter one word. Not my will, but thine be done. Father, if it is possible, take this cup away from me. Nonetheless, not my will, thy will be done. In other words, our Lord understood one thing. When he became a man and came to earth, according to Philippians chapter 2, he was formed in the fashion of man and became a servant even unto death. And the reason why that is so is because it was to fulfill uh, God's will. So what we need in our lives as believers it's not some kind of an experience that finally fix our entire lives for us so that we don't have to struggle any longer. What we need is the realization that at conversion, we became God's slaves and our whole purpose in life is the pursuit of His will. So that rather than focus on our problems and our emergencies and all the things that confront us, we Take our focus off ourselves and focus on his will. See? It is then that you will find as a believer that you have the transformative peace that passes all understanding. In other words, stop waiting on some kind of a marvelous deliverance or experience that's going to put everything in your life as you want it to be. Make your focus Christ and God's will. And that is the way that you begin as a believer to have victory in your life. That's why Paul says you were freed from sin, but the reason why you were freed from sin is that you were become a slave unto God. See? That's why you were delivered. Not that you can live your own life, but that you become a person who now becomes. Remember that when we talked about this in chapter 6, we drew to your attention in the Old Testament of a man who was a slave. But then he decides voluntarily. When he's about to be freed, I love my master. I love what he's doing for me. Therefore, I will now bore my ears to the wall. And he had that distinguishing mark. And once people saw that ear born, they knew one thing. He had volunteered to remain. On, and the other thing people knew, he loved his master. See? Similarly, that's what God expects us as believers. That we are free to become slaves to God. That's the second thing that Paul points out here. That, you see why I said to you, it's very difficult to incentivize people to holiness. <laughs> Imagine what it must have been. The apostle Paul said, okay, here we, you should be holy. You should be holy because God freed you from sin. 
But number two, God free from sin that you may become a slave to God. See? How does that motivate people? People whose interests are mainly focused on down here. The tangible, See? the material. See? How do you get people away from that to motivate them to these spiritual, intangible, eternal truths? But these are the very things that Paul appealed, not the things, health, wealth, and prosperity. That's what we say today. That's why the churches are busting at the seams. But imagine any of those same men saying, here's why you should become a Christian and live righteously. Because number one, you're freed from sin. Number two, you became a slave to God. The zeal goes. The passion goes. Because that's not what the interest is. The interest is focused on the tangible, the material, and the physical. And that's why there's such a great appeal to those kind of things. The third thing that Paul points out here in this chapter, verse 22. Remember, he's giving reasons and logic. He's applying. He's appealing to the mind. of the, he's like, These are four negative things that you need to remember. That's what you used to be. But now let me give you four positive things, quite frankly. The third one, he says, you have fruit unto righteousness. Now again, what a significant contrast between what Paul said in verse 21. He asked the question, what kind of fruit you had when you were that way? He said, all you had was shame. So your life, when you look back, Paul is saying to you, quite frankly, with two things. Number one, you had barrenness and you have shamefulness. That's all sin gave you. That's how come, that's all the old life gave you. A barren life and a fruitless life that all it manifests itself in shame and embarrassment. Now you mean to tell me you're going back to that? When God offers you freedom from sin, service to God, and now fruit unto holiness, which do you prefer? Sometimes you can't answer that question in church. You'd be embarrassed for what people would answer. See? Because of the carnal, fleshly, earthly interests that so governs their lives, see? So the Apostle Paul is saying that there was fruit now where there was formerly barrenness. And the reason why there's fruit is because of the change of relationship. See, That's why there's fruit in your life. In other words, it's impossible for a person to produce fruit in their life unless there is regeneration and there's a transformative relation between that person and God. You ever read Matthew chapter 7? Look what our Lord said at the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, and look at verse number 16 to 18. He said in verse 16, You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? I mean, this is an ackee tree over here. I can't get guavas out of it. And I can't certainly pick mangoes out of it. And his point is, notice what he says in the next verse. He said, the good tree bringeth forth what? He said, a good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, nor can a corrupt tree produce good fruit. Every tree that bringeth forth not good fruit is hewn down and is cast into the fire. Here's his point. If you want fruit, the quality of the fruit depends on the nature of the tree. A bad tree can't produce good fruit. What he's saying is something has to happen to produce good fruit. And that has to happen because the tree needs to be changed. The nature needs to be changed. 
And that's what Paul is saying. Because of that change that took place, this relationship between you and God has changed. Now he produces fruit in your life. It was once barren, but no, Paul said, it is fruitful. I want to say two things that are necessary in order to have fruit unto holiness. In other words, there are two agencies that the Bible says are, are essential to fruit in your life. The first one is this. Christ must be at work in your life for your life to produce fruit. John chapter 15. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He said, it is through me that you produce fruit. He goes on to say in chapter 15, verse 5, without me, you can do nothing. You can't produce the fruit that God wants that leads to holiness. It's the work of Christ in you that produced that fruit in your life. That is why there has to be a change in the relationship between you and God in order to have fruit in your life. That's why in your unsaved condition, you could not produce fruit that would lead to holiness or righteousness. And that's why the Bible says all are right is a filthy rags because they cannot produce the righteousness that God wants. Christ in us, he produces that fruit. And by the way, that fruit is uh, fruit that is in degrees. In John chapter 7, John chapter 15, he talks about fruit, much fruit, more fruit, see. So not everybody's going to produce the same fruit. But I'll tell you this, every Christian must produce fruit in your life. If your life is fruitless, it means it's as barren as it used to be. It means there has not been a change in your relationship between you and God. Something hasn't happened in your life. But once there's a change and a transformation and you become saved... Then your life will produce fruit. Someone has said that the only thing that God has given to us is the right to be fruit inspectors. That's how you determine whether a man is saved or not. He can say all he wants to. She can say all she wants to. Just words. The way you know is to look at the fruit of that person's life. By their fruits, you shall know them. Look at their life and see what kind of fruit they produce. Are they producing good fruit, bad fruit? If they're producing bad fruit, it's a bad tree. If they're producing good fruit, it's a good tree. See, Something happens in that person's life. So the first thing that's vitally important here is that we must understand that this conversion of us, when we get saved and we become united to Christ by the baptism work of the Holy Spirit, he now begins to produce fruit in our lives. See, We're joined to him and he produced the fruit in our life. Let me show you how Paul points that out in chapter 7. Look at chapter 7 of Romans and look at uh, verse number 4. We'll come to this uh, in the next section. Look at verse 4, how he puts it. He says, Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another. To whom? Even to him who is raised from the dead, that you might what? Bring forth what? Fruit unto God. What a marvelous teaching. Paul is saying, when you were married to the law and you were trying to live under the law, you couldn't produce fruit. The law can tell you what to do, but it can't help you to do what you need to do. So when you died with Christ, what happened? You died to the law. 
But what happened now is that you died to the Lord that not only you're married to Christ. And now Christ produces fruit unto God. In other words, the law could not impregnate you to produce fruit. Could not produce fruit in your life. That's why Paul said the law was weak through the flesh. Not that the law is not good, but the flesh is so weak. It needs empowerment. And the Bible is here teaching you that you became married to Christ, that through him you might now produce fruit unto God. He has to work in your life to produce this fruit. That's the first thing I want to say about this fruit unto holiness. That's the first agent. The other thing I would like to point out to you, uh, he says in verse, the same verse, ye have fruit unto God. Notice that the word ye is plural. That's the thing about the value about the King James Version, by the way. In English, you can mean you singular or you plural. I can say all of you. Referring to the whole church. I could say to you, referring to my wife. In the King James, and that's getting the ancient English, uh, English really, uh, when you use you, you know it's singular. But when you say ye, it's always plural. So what Paul is saying here, ye, all you Christians have fruit unto eternal life. In other every Christian must produce fruit in their life. It's not restricted to a special few. But once you have become connected with Christ, joined with Christ, married to Christ, united to Christ, he will produce fruit unto you in your life. You remember Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9? For by grace are you saved through faith and not know yourself, the gift of God. And then it says, but we are his workmanship, created unto, Christ, unto good works. See? It's the same principle being thought that once you have become united to Christ, you know will produce fruit because he produces fruit in your life. It's inevitable once you are genuinely, authentically converted. The second thing I need to point out here, the second agent is not only the person of Christ in your life, but according to Galatians chapter 5, in order to have fruit in your life, you need also the work of the Holy Spirit. In John, in Galatians chapter 5, and verse 22 and 23, it says that there are nine fruit that the Holy Spirit produces in the believer's life. Nine. And he talked about love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. These nine things are what the Holy Spirit does to produce in your life. By the way, he contrasts the fruit of the Holy Spirit with the works of the flesh. The flesh can produce works. It can produce things. But what the flesh produces, and he mentions 19 things that the flesh produces. He talks about adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, enviance, murder, drunkenness, and reveling. Nineteen. See? The flesh is at work, and this is the things it produces. But the Holy Spirit is also at work producing these nine fruit in the believer's life. So what I'm saying to you uh, this morning... Uh, we not only have been freed from sin, we not only become enslaved to God, but the reason why we become enslaved to God is that we might produce fruit unto holiness. We have fruit unto holiness. Uh, and the Apostle Paul is making it clear that this is another reason why the believer should be incentivized, as it were, um, to pursue a life of victory and uh, get um, conquest over this habitual sinful lifestyle. One other thing I want to point out to you here. 
Do you notice how Paul is very, very careful in the words that he used? Look at verse number 22. But he said, but uh, being made free from sin and become servants of righteousness, you have your fruit unto holiness. What if Paul had, by, by a slip of the pen, said you have your fruit unto the next word he got, everlasting life? Very, very careful. And here is why it is so important to see the distinction here that Paul makes, that you had your fruit unto righteousness, and he said in the end, everlasting life. But if he had reversed that, you know what Paul would have done? Paul would have completely destroyed the whole doctrine of justification by faith. Because Paul would now make fruit bearing the condition under which a person gets eternal life. But it's not what the Bible teaches. Eternal life is a gift from God. It's a free gift from God. See? And that's why Paul is so careful to say, you know, you have fruit unto holiness, not fruit unto eternal life. In other words, eternal life is not a fruit. It's a gift. See? And it's a free gift that God offers on the basis of grace. And that's how a person becomes converted. So, number one, Paul says, you're freed from sin. Number two, Paul says, you become enslaved to God. And then number three, Paul says, you also have fruit in your life. It's no longer a barren life. There should be fruit in your life. Every one of us in here, there's no perfect people in here. But every one of us should have evidence of the fruit of God working in our lives. If you cannot speak of any fruit of God working in your life, I am suggesting to you that you're still in a barren state, which means that you're still in an unsafe state. Because once you become converted and that relationship changes, Christ works in your life to produce fruit. The Holy Spirit works in your life to produce fruit. The evidence of genuine, authentic salvation is always the kind of fruit that person's life bears. That brings me to one of my favorite topics I would like to, to mention here quickly. By the way, uh, if I might quote uh, what Paul said in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 to 20. He lists these 19 sins that I mentioned to you. And this is what he said. And I want to quote. He said, of which, these 19 things, I told you before, as I have told you in time past, that they which practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. He warns them. You remember he said the same thing in Corinthians chapter. He said, be not deceived. God is not mocked. Those that practice these things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Those that habitually practice these things. And that brings us to the last incentive that Paul uses to motivate these believers to pursue this life. He says in verse number four, but you were made free from sin. You became servants of God. You have your fruit unto righteousness. And he said in the end, you had what? Everlasting life. Again, the apostle Paul is contrasting what you have in Christ and what you had in the old life. He said in the last verse 21, he said in the end, what did you look forward to when you were in the old life? You look forward to shame. But he said, but in the end, all you've got to look forward to is death. That's all you had to look forward to. And by the way, we explained to you that, of course, he's talking about spiritual death. He's talking about physical death. He's talking about eternal death. But that word does not exhaust the concept of death 
that you experience as a person who is not saved. There are other forms of death that when you were in your unsaved state, you also endured. For example, you found that you endured death to purity, death to to morality, death to honesty, death to the dreams that you might have had, death to uh, meaning, death to purpose, death to hope, death to trust, yes, and even death to love. In your unsaved state, all it was, your entire life before you were Christian is marked by a whole series of deaths. And then finally, Paul said, you end up with eternal death. So what profit was that kind of a life? Now, in contrast to that, Paul said, in the end as a believer, what are you going to get? Everlasting life. Eternal life. And again, um, I am not too sure that to lift up eternal life before modern man is incentivizing him to do anything today. It seems that we have developed a callousness and an insensitivity to spiritual things. Not, not even the great offer of eternal life is attractive any longer. You give a man a track and he says, well, you didn't give me $5. He tells you, you know, it's no yes, you give me that because I'm going to throw it away. You, you find it very, very difficult because we are now living in an age that every man is bound by time. And here we are, instead of saving men, we're trying to save Mother Earth and save the planet. And the key thing that everybody's concerned about today is climate change. And all our energy and all our power is about trying to change. Here's it. We should be rescuing men from a planet that is doomed to destruction rather than trying to save a planet and losing men who are going to spend eternity somewhere. But we've reversed the entire system of doing it. But the Apostle Paul is saying to you that uh, in the end, you and I are going to have eternal life. And uh, I would like to just say in closing this morning, uh, because the question may be asked, how do we get this eternal life that the Bible is talking about? And I don't have to quote Pastor Murphy's own verses. I can quote what our Lord Jesus Christ said in, in, in John chapter 3, verse 14 to 18. He said, as Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whosoever believe in him should have eternal life. And then he goes on to say, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And then he says, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. He that believeth not is condemned already, but he that believeth is passed from death unto life. See? So this eternal life that we have and is offered and belongs to the believer comes as a result of our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That's what the exercise is all about, putting your faith and trust in Christ. And we have that eternal life now, but we will only experience it after we go over on that other scene of eternity. I want to ask you in closing, what would it take to motivate you to pursue a life of holiness. What, 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 what can a minister do? What can a pastor do? What can God do in his word to really motivate you to live a life of holiness? See? Do these four things appeal to you? Do you hear these things and say, ah, I want, I'm so free from sin. I'm so glad I'm free from that. Ah, I am now a slave to God. I have no will but my own, but to live for him. Ah, I now have fruit unto righteousness. These are the nine fruit of the Holy Spirit. Ah, now I have eternal life. I don't want anything more. These are totally satisfying to me. 
So I will pursue. I cannot answer for you this morning because I do not know exactly how these things impact you. But I'll be very honest with you. As I was looking at these things, I said, but you know, how do I motivate the people in Grace Baptist Church to pursue holiness and righteousness? And I went through these four things. I said, but I don't think these are the things that would motivate people in this church. See? But I'm locked into God's word. So I can't go beyond scripture. So I must present them to you and let the Holy Spirit do a work in you to motivate you to pursue these things because of these four things. I heard Brother Cave gave the, some of the statistics about the situation in Antigua with COVID and how many people have died and so on and so forth. You know, nobody has died in our realm that we know about so far that I know of. But let's, let's remember one thing. This thing isn't over. This thing isn't over. See? We've got to remind ourselves, every single one of us, that we are mortal. We are not invincible. And because we heard of somebody who died in the village, some difference from you, it doesn't mean that you're safe. See? My only question to you is this. Let's suppose that this is your last year. This is your last year of life. Let me ask you a question. What would you say were your pursuits in life? If you stood before God at your age, what would you consider your pursuits? Would you say, God, I was in pursuit of holiness because I recognized these incentives you gave me. You freed me from sin. You enslaved me to yourself. I wanted fruit unto righteousness. And above all, I pursued and I counted the privilege that I have eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. I was motivated by these things. Only you can evaluate your own life by that standard. But that's the only standard that we're given by the Apostle Paul. So let us as God's people take Scripture, allow the truth of Scripture to so fill our minds that it transforms our thinking and put it in the right disposition where we understand that the entire purpose of why we're here is to pursue God's will and to pursue holiness. Everything else is peripheral. May God help us in it. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for those who sat and listened patiently. We know that we're dealing with truths that substantially uh, the appeal of those things have lost their impact because we are such a low level of spirituality and carnality is so taken over the church and people's disposition and mindset is so much about now and here and all the earthly concerns that when we come to such noble intriguing passages as this where Paul is using uh, such great features to encourage us to pursue holiness we find that we're disadvantaged uh, because these are not things that really, truly are appealing to most people today, including most Christians. We can tell them how to increase their stock shares, or we can tell them how to uh, advance uh, their job or their career, or we can tell them how to make uh, a percentage on their deposits, uh, or we can promise them that they will have exceedingly great health, uh, these are things, Lord, that the people perk up their ears and are eager to listen to. 
But when we take these four things that Paul talks about as the positive incentives for the pursuit of holiness, there's a strange uh, disinterest in the pursuit of these things. Only your Holy Spirit can do the work, and it requires that particular transformative power in our lives to motivate us to the pursuit of these things. In ourselves, we are dirt. We are ashes. We are like a drop in the bucket. As the Bible says, God remembers that we are flesh. And this morning, remind us, O Lord, and remind, uh, bring to your memory that we are flesh, we are weak. And therefore, we need the power of your spirit to work in us. We need the power of Christ to work in us, to give us the drive and the push and the motivation that we need to lose sight of all these distractions around us and all the various concerns that seem to have taken over people's minds and heart and help us, Lord, to get back to these fundamental basics of this Christianity where we, we appreciate uh, what you've done for us, the transform, transformation you've brought in our lives, and these become incentives for us to pursue you, to know you better, and to pursue holiness, which in essence is complete devotion to your will and surrender to your purpose. Would you help us, Lord, to move in that direction? And even though it may be incremental, I just pray, Lord, it would be something that becomes a reality in all of our lives. If there's anyone that is not saved and never put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we pray that these things that Paul talks about understand that these are not human achievements. These are a result of a gift of grace. And by putting their faith and trust in Christ, they become ours by that act of sovereign faith. We ask these things in Christ's name. Uh, be with those who need to trust Him. Be with those who are already trusted Him. Help us to take hold of these truths and make them a daily part of our lives and our thinking. Transform our minds and uh, help us to be governed and ruled and controlled by the principles of your word and not by the earthly voices we hear all around us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Be sure you join us again next time here on Sermons of Grace as Pastor Murphy continues our study of Romans chapter 6. If you'd like to contact Pastor David Murphy or Grace Baptist Church, please call 268-462-4230 or visit during one of their service times. Sunday school is at 9 a.m., Sunday morning at 10 a.m., Sunday evening at 7 p.m., or Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. Grace Baptist Church is located on Rowan Henry Street in Gambles Terrace, Antigua.